which is very eschatological, but you'll see where we're heading after a few moments. So open your Bibles to Matthew 25. How you doing, Ron? Find it yet? It's, for, it's New Testament. You know what Dee did for me? She, what's the name of that restaurant? Charlie's. Charlie's restaurant, they have the best coleslaw. And I just, I, you know, didn't know I was going to get more today. She went out and bought me coleslaw. That was half my lunch. I couldn't finish my sandwich. I gave it to T.R. But that was better for me. Matthew 25. At that time, now let me just say what that means. I think the King James Version says, then. It's referring to time because in Matthew 24, Jesus has been dealing with eschatology. He's been talking about the last days, uh, what it's going to be like just before the second coming. So he says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, could I just say that that does not mean 12 o'clock midnight. The Greek word means in the middle of the night. The cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the marriage or to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. And may God be pleased to bless the reading and the teaching of this, his most holy and infallible word, brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to be upon every mind, that their perception of what I say will be received as you intend, upon my heart, my mind, my tongue, that I will be your transparent instrument to say everything you want said and nothing you don't want said. May this be a word that's pivotal in our thinking a word that makes a difference in our perspective from this day. And may it be a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The bridegroom was a long time coming, but then in the middle of the night came the cry, here comes the bridegroom, go out to meet him. Now, you could call this an eschatological sermon, uh, but I, and, and it is to an extent, but I use this as, as a background. Sometimes I preach from Matthew 22 about the scriptures and the power of God, but I felt I should take a different approach today. Now, let me start out by saying that I hold that there is, in the church generally, speaking generally, there's been a silent divorce between the Word and the Spirit. Now, when there's a divorce, sometimes the children stay with the mother, sometimes the children stay with the father. In this divorce, you have some on the Word side and some on the Spirit side. I travel many places, and uh, I can tell you, uh, it doesn't take but a few seconds to know whether you're in a word church or a spirit church. Uh, what's the difference? Well, take those on the word side. They believe the only solution to the problem of the world today is for the church to get back to the word. Earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. Expository preaching. Know your doctrine. Rediscover what Luther discovered or rediscovered. Justification by faith. Jonathan Edwards, sovereignty of God. And until we get back to this, the honor of God's name will not be restored. What's wrong with that emphasis? Nothing. It's exactly right. Take those on the spirit side. What is the emphasis? We need to get back to the book of Acts, where there are signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Spirit in operation. Lie to the Holy Spirit, you're struck dead. They have prayer meetings, the place is shaken. Get into Peter's shadow, you're healed. And until the church has that kind of power, the honor of God's name will not be restored. What's wrong with that emphasis? Nothing. It's exactly right. But we're living in a time, I wish it weren't so, and there are exceptions, but not many, where neither will learn from the other, and both sides become entrenched, and uh, the church continues on in its stay, same state while the world is going to hell. And I don't think you're going to disagree when I say that at the moment, the church is making no impact on the world. People ask me, because I travel a lot, what's God doing today in South Africa, Alaska, Australia, Middle East, all over America, England? What's he doing? And my honest answer, not a lot. Now, I find churches here and there where there's, you know, blessing. And, 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 and so it's not totally bleak. But for the most part, even the churches that uh, seem to be blessed, 
I don't think anybody in those cities are afraid of the church. Do you know of anybody that's afraid of us? Do you know of anybody that's afraid of us? They ought to be. But there's no sense of the fear of God. Uh, Nobody respects us. There was a day when the church was held in respect, but not anymore. And uh, it is my view that what is needed is not one of these or the other, not one or the other, but the both. And that the simultaneous combination will result in spontaneous combustion. And then the church will be making an impact. And they're going to be running to see what it is we've got. Uh, That is the premise of what I'm saying. But I've decided that I wanted, for some reason, to put this in an eschatological context. Now, I don't deal much with eschatology. Uh, When I first started preaching uh, 57 years ago, I was pastor of a little church in Palmer, Tennessee, a little tiny church up in the mountains. And and my dad came to hear me from Ashland, Kentucky. And I was kind of pleased to have my dad there. And I was going to impress him. And I had a great sermon on prophecy, not what people today refer to prophecy, prophetic words. No, this is second coming, antichrist, how's all going to happen? I was waiting for my dad to say, son, that was great. You know what he said to me? He says, R.T., could I give you some advice? The man you were named after, R.T. Williams, gave this advice to young ministers. He says, you young ministers, stay away from the subject of prophecy. Let the old men do that because they won't be around to see their mistakes. (laughs) I'm now old. The parable of the ten virgins is uh, one of my favorite parables, has been all my life. And as I pointed out, I'll say it again, the word midnight doesn't mean 12 o'clock. It means middle of the night. The second coming that is in this passage is not at midnight. It is not even in the middle of the night. I think some people rush through the parable of the ten virgins and assume that when the midnight cry comes, Jesus comes. And this has been encouraged by the thought that, well, he's going to come at midnight. And and I remember as a boy seeing a preacher hold up a big clock It's seven minutes to 12. And uh, it came back two years later. It's four minutes to 12 to when Jesus is going to come. And then I realized some time ago that, first of all, Jesus doesn't come at 12. Even at the time of the cry, that's not when Jesus comes. It's an awakening that comes before going into the bride. Uh, the, the marriage. It was first the awakening, and then one goes into the banquet. And so what I'm going to talk to you about is this awakening that will precede the second coming. Now, uh, 
the questions that we deal with is, who are the ten virgins? What is the meaning of the wise and the foolish? And what is this cry in the middle of the night? Well, first of all, I take the view that it refers to the end times. I heard someone downstairs while ago say, we're not just in the last days, we're in the very last days. And I happen to believe that. I happen to believe that. Uh, and so when Jesus is at that time, at the beginning, or then, whichever version you're using, it means this is the way it will be in the very last days. And uh, what that means is uh, that in the very last days, the church will be asleep. Now, the ten virgins represent the church in the last days. Uh, Now, I've got a book on the parables of Jesus, we didn't bring any of those, uh, but I've got. If you want to see all of what I have to say, it's in that book. But this parable is based upon an ancient Middle Eastern wedding. Uh, Jesus' immediate hearers would have understood this perhaps better than we do today, because the wedding in those days didn't take place in a church or a synagogue, or a registry office. Uh, here's the way it was. Uh, the wedding would sometimes take the form of a seven-day celebration. And uh, the wedding took place in the house of the groom, the bridegroom. That's where it took place. And uh, because of the seven-day celebration, uh, the way it was is that the groom would go to the bride's house and come and get her and bring her back to his house. And that's where the wedding took place. Not at her house, but at his. So he goes to get her. And uh, uh, the bride uh, would never know exactly when he's going to come. And he would, uh, she would have attendance uh, usually uh, uh, unmarried uh, young ladies, and uh, they simply uh, would be her attendants, and uh, they would accompany the bridal company uh, back to the house of the groom. But because the exact time of the groom's arrival was uncertain, the bride was expected to be ready to leave at any minute. And I guess, uh, you know, if that's the way it was, and, and apparently that's the way it was, she didn't know when he was going to come. And so she had to be ready. And these attendants, they had to be ready. And uh, they would have lamps for illumination in case it was in the night. And uh, they would all have enough oil so that the lamps would be burning and so forth. Well, the unmarried ladies called here virgins, uh, if they were prudent, they'd bring enough uh, uh, additional oil in their their flask and uh, so that they would be ready. Now, when it comes to parables, remember this rule about parables. You can't make a table stand even on all four legs. And so with a parable, you don't want to take this means that, this means that. But 
generally speaking, what we have here is that there would be a call just before the second coming. And it could be in the middle of the night, and uh, the church would be asleep. And the church would be comprised of wise and foolish people. And he does not say what form the midnight cry will take place. We only know that the cry was effective, and it woke up uh, the church. Everybody was awake. And uh, sadly, only those who had oil uh, got to go in to the wedding banquet. Now, I'm not sure all that the wedding banquet means, but it certainly includes getting to enjoy a long-anticipated event. And uh, it is uh, possible to be unashamed when this happens. Now, these wise virgins refer to Christians who pursued their inheritance by persistent faith. Um, And the foolish are those who blew away their inheritance. Let me put it to you like this. Every Christian is called to enter into his or her inheritance. Some do, some don't. And uh, those who are wise will pursue their inheritance. Uh, And uh, so those who blow away their inheritance are those who took no oil, ran out of oil, they gave up, and uh, they would be like those who uh, lose faith in the Bible, those who say, well, I've been serving the Lord for a good while, and I haven't uh, prospered all that much. Maybe a person was told, if you put God first, you're going to drive a Cadillac, and he gets discouraged. Uh, or when we heard of the testimony downstairs about the person who had given up this ministry and reverted to type. Are we to say that person wasn't truly converted? I would say that person probably was truly converted. Uh, We don't know all the details. Uh, But certainly this person didn't pursue uh, their inheritance. It looks like they're blowing it. And uh, so this is possible. Those who persist in faith... Uh, though they had fallen asleep, would still be rewarded by having oil in their vessels. Now, the oil refers to the Holy Spirit and those who are open to the immediate and direct witness of the Spirit are those who will likely come into their inheritance. And those who are not open to the immediate uh, witness of the Spirit will almost certainly forfeit their inheritance. Now, Here's the thing. Jesus said that at that time, the church will be asleep. So if we are in the last days, even if you are a wise virgin, you're asleep. And I would be addressing people today, chances are all of you are asleep. I cannot exclude myself. Who am I to say, well, I'm awake. Sorry about you people. No. It says they all slumbered and slept. 
Let me tell you something about sleep first. You do not know you were asleep until you wake up. And so if I said to you, you're asleep, you'd say, I'm not. But then if you are truly awakened, you'll think, I'm ashamed. I don't believe how, how I've drifted. You don't know you were asleep until you wake up. Second, when you're asleep, you dream things that you wouldn't do if you were awake. You wake up and I think, boy, this dream I had, that's not me. I wouldn't do that. But that's the thing about sleep. You do things you wouldn't do in your sleep if you were awake. I think that describes the church today. The church is asleep and doing things it would never do if awake. Would never do if awake. Uh, There's no sense of outrage today over what is happening. We all just say, yeah, boy, these are awful times. Really bad. Back to sleep we go. And we all say, yeah, it's just not good. But we're not really bothered by it. And the third thing about sleep, you hate the sound of an alarm. Just we turn it off. Please, I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be told that. Let me sleep on. It's kind of like 9-11. Uh, when that happened, there were those who for a few months were outraged and awake. Flags went up everywhere. I don't see flags anywhere now. We went right back to sleep. And I don't think there will be a warning next time. I think something is going to happen and it's going to catch everybody by utter surprise. What happened in Boston is nothing compared to what is down the road. Now, the midnight cry is when God's servants preach with power rarely seen. And uh, it possibly comes through catastrophic events in the world. Uh, and I think the midnight cry, and I'm using the word midnight by meaning middle of the night, will be when the word and the spirit come together. And when the word and spirit come together, the church will be awakened in a way that hasn't been awakened for a long, long time. Now, back in 1992, I gave an address at Wembley Conference Center in London. Uh, I think that conference center was probably the first Word and Spirit conference. I don't know that for sure, but nobody can remember anybody before having this emphasis. And... uh, uh, a well-known prophetic man joined me, and uh, we had uh, a major day, and it filled uh, Wembley Conference Center. And I gave an address on the closing night that got me into more trouble than any address I've ever given in my whole life. Nothing else that I ever preached even came close 
uh, more invitations canceled, more people distanced themselves from me, and here's what I said. I'll take a moment to describe that talk. Abraham sincerely believed that Ishmael was the promised son. And he believed that for some 13 years. Now, you probably know the story, but let me refresh your mind. One day God said to Abraham, count the stars. And he couldn't count them. And uh, God says, so will your seed be. At the time, Abraham had been depressed. He said, Lord, read in Genesis 15, you've given me all this wealth. Here I am, an old man. Sarah is old. We've got no children. Who am I going to leave this wealth to? Shall I give it to my servant, Eliezer? And God says, go outside your tent and count the stars. And, and he said, I can't count them. There's too many. It looks like there might be Dozens and dozens, and of course we know now there are billions, and there are so many that no telescope could even count them. And God said, so will your seed be. Abraham might have said, don't tease me. Don't joke with me. Do you expect me to believe that? But he did. He believed it. And God says, good. For that, I count you righteous. And that became the Apostle Paul's exhibit, A, for his teaching of justification by faith. We tell a person, you believe this gospel, that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, righteousness will be put to your credit. Now, when we preach this gospel, some may say, you expect me to believe that? Do you think I'm crazy? But there are those who do believe it. And for those who believe it, God says, I count you righteous. All right. Now, Abraham uh, was now righteous in God's sight. But then after a few years, Sarah is still not producing a baby. And she's getting old, he's getting older, and she says to Abraham, why don't you sleep with Hagar, my maidservant? Well, he did. Hagar got pregnant. It was a male child. Needed to be a male, and it was. And so Abraham thinks, well, I guess that's it. That's the way it was going to be. You said my seed, and, and they named him Ishmael, and he will be my son. And Abraham adjusted to it. Wasn't what he thought it was going to be, but it's okay. It's, his, it's from his body. And so he accepted it. For 13 years, and Abraham went on believing that Ishmael was it. God didn't say a word. And then one day, lo and behold, God says to Abraham, Oh, by the way, Abraham, Ishmael is not it not the promised son. Sarah will conceive. Oh, no, says Abraham. 
you would have thought that news would thrill him no end. He's not happy at all. He said, oh, that Ishmael might be the one. Genesis 17, read it. Please, let it be Ishmael. Don't make me go through this anymore. Sarah will conceive. Isaac is coming. And when Abraham saw that God wasn't joking, even though she laughed, he laughed, but then they sobered up and believed it. And so in the latter part of Romans chapter 4, you have where Abraham now believed it, came, became fully persuaded that Sarah will conceive. And lo and behold, Sarah conceives. She's 90, he's 100. Isaac was born. Well, that's the background. A few days before the address I gave at the Wembley Conference Center, I said to one charismatic leader in London, I said, if you were to guess whether the charismatic movement is Ishmael or Isaac, which would you say it is? He said, Isaac. I said, what if I told you it's Ishmael? Oh, no, he said. Same reaction Abraham had. Please, please, are you suggesting that our great movement, our charismatic movement, is Ishmael? I said, yep. Oh, oh he was sobered. That was a litmus test a few days before I gave my talk. And that night... I preached that message. Jack Taylor, Charles Carlin, and I have a book, Word, Spirit, and Power. You can get the details of it. It's one of the books out there. The need to bring word and spirit together, and I tell more that I've just, than I told you just now. But that night at Wembley Conference Center, I said nothing that anybody liked. First of all, the evangelicals there didn't like it because I said the only churches in England worth their salt are charismatic churches. The evangelicals didn't like that because they didn't want to give them anything. I said, nearly all the great hymns of our generation have been written by charismatics. I don't know if you know that. But evangelicals rarely, rarely by comparison, come up with the great hymns. The great hymns, Graham Kendrick, for example, written dozens and dozens, that swept around the world. I could go on and name more names. But they're charismatics. And I said, the church is worth their salt in England, are charismatic. That said, Isaac is coming. And as the promise to Isaac was a hundred times greater than the promise to Ishmael. So what is coming down the road is a hundred times greater than anything we have ever seen in the history of the church. And that something is coming down the road when the word and the spirit come together, that will be Isaac. 
You see, you can't tell most charismatic stroke Pentecostal people that they don't preach the word. They say, well, what do you think we preach? We preach the Bible. Don't say we don't preach the word. I say, I know that. I know you preach the Bible. And when you talk to evangelicals, you tell them you don't believe in the Holy Spirit, they, they, they're insulted. Of course we believe in the Holy Spirit. We're Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Don't, don't insult us. Neither one seemed to get it. Well, that night when I dropped that bomb, you could hear a pin drop, no applause, no standing ovation, charismatic leaders that were there were livid. One of them said, we need to call a public conference and sit in judgment on R.T. Kendall's word. Nearly every one of them, they, they, they were so angry, one of them said he could have chewed nails. I upset them. Because he said, you called us Ishmael. I said, but aren't you thrilled to think that something great is coming? But that didn't, that didn't do it. They, they took it personally. They wanted to, what they're doing, you know, has got to be affirmed. We're Isaac. But guess what? Now, some 15, 20 years later, some of these very same people have come to me and said, R.T., we hope you are right. Because if you're not, and this is it, if what we have is it, we're in pretty bad shape. Because nobody's turning the world upside down. Nobody. And now they're coming around. And one of them that was the angriest is even endorsed. Now what I taught. You see, Isaac is coming. And we're talking about when the word and spirit come together, the spontaneous combustion will cause such an amazing awakening that for the first time in generations, the church is wide awake. Now, I am not saying how it's going to happen. I'm saying it's going to happen. I'm saying it's going to happen suddenly. And I will go as far as to say it will happen in my lifetime. And I'm 77. I don't expect any of you to believe me. It's okay. It's all right. I'm not trying to convince you that I'm right. I'm just telling you this is what I believe. And when it happens for the first time in generations, the world is going to respect the church. We'll have a message. The key to the next great awakening is the book of Romans, and especially chapter 4. The first half of Romans 4 is about justification by faith. It's a message that has been lost. You won't find one in a hundred Christians today who could write a simple paragraph and explain what is justification by faith. They don't have a clue. 
And yet that was the message that gave us the great reformation, turn the world upside down. And Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans was being read in Aldersgate Street in London in 1738, and John Wesley, when he heard it, was converted just from hearing the preface, the teaching of justification by faith, how we are saved. The second half of Romans is about coming into your inheritance. And those who come into their inheritance are like the wise virgins who took oil with them. Now here's the thing. Even the wise virgins were asleep. But they were walking in the light. They were pursuing their inheritance. They were walking in total forgiveness. They were supporting the church. They were walking in the light. Yet they were still asleep. This is why I'm suggesting, with respect, that you, and I include myself, need to be awakened. We're just going on. And when we are awakened, it'll be a totally different situation. Now, when I gave that talk at Wembley, I did not know that someone else had said virtually the same thing some 40 years before. How many of you have ever heard the name Smith Wigglesworth? Look at that. And there were one or two at Wembley thought that's where I got it. I said, what do you mean? They said, you don't know about Smith Wigglesworth's prophecy? No. What, what do you mean? Well, I'll tell you what, you can go, when you get home today, you can go on the internet and just Google Smith Wigglesworth prophecy, 1947. That's all you got to do. Read it for yourself. In case you don't, I'm going to read it to you. In 1947, three months before Wigglesworth died, he said this, quote, During the next few decades, there will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit across the church in Great Britain. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it and will be characterized by a restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The second move of the Holy Spirit will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches. This is Britain now. This is Britain. In the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, quote, This is the great revival. But the Lord says, no, neither is this the great revival, but both are steps towards it. When the new church phase is on the wane, there will be evidenced in the churches something that has not been seen before, a coming together of those with an emphasis on the word and those with an emphasis on the spirit. When the Word and the Spirit come together, there will be the biggest movement of the Holy Spirit that the nation and indeed the world has ever seen. 
It will be the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything, including the Wesleyan and the Welsh revivals. And it will begin a missionary move to the ends of the earth. That's what I said that night in Wembley. This is going to cross denominational, geographical lines. It's going to go right around the world. Wigglesworth said everything I said, I called it Isaac. It's the only difference. He didn't use the word Isaac. I did. There's something coming. And it's going to happen when we're all asleep. Here's the thing. Are you a wise or a foolish virgin? And a good way to know is whether when God shows you something, you say, yes, Lord. Or whether you dig in your heels, I don't think I want that. And you today showed, yes, Lord. I come with a message of total forgiveness. And it was like 100% response. Good sign. Stay there. Keep that up. Don't backslide. Even if you're asleep and you're not like you ought to be, or am I? One thing for certain, you're walking in all the light you've got. Those who don't walk in the light, and those who give up, and those who say, I just can't go on, will be awakened, and then they're going to come to you and say, give us of your oil, and you'll say, I'm sorry, I I just have enough for myself. And the foolish will miss out on what's coming. So that when this cry comes in the middle of the night, if we have been walking in the light, the greatest move of the Holy Ghost in 2,000 years, which is coming, and it could come any day, it could come any day, you could be right in the middle of it. Or off to one side, just observing. That will be the foolish. They won't get to enjoy it. They won't get to enjoy it. But I want to be in the middle of it. It is coming. Now, you will just have to decide, after you go home today, whether you take this in and believe that R.T. got it right. Not coming here to say, you've got to believe this. I'm telling you, what is the conviction mine? I've preached this for probably about 40 years. Shared this with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones before I, 20 years before I ever shared it uh, at Wembley that night. It did encourage me, if I'm honest, that Smith Wigglesworth said the same thing. It did. Because at the time, I felt pretty lonely. And if you knew the places I was invited to preach, cancel, cancel, cancel. Couldn't, they couldn't cope with this. And a lot don't even want to believe that there's a problem. That We need to get the spirit and the word together. But I believe we do. And spirit churches, by and large, though they believe the Bible, speaking generally, have a shallow theological understanding. 
Those who are word people may have a good understanding of theology, but they have no concept of the Holy Spirit giving you a word and have an intimacy with God. Well, that's my message for today. I know that when uh, I was at Westminster Chapel, uh, which is a word church, was, I think by the time we left, it was a word and spirit church for two years, just before I left. We got the two together. We saw people healed. We saw amazing things. But generally speaking, over my 25 years there, when the service was over, people would say, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. That's what they came for. That's what they got. There are churches where when they go to church, they don't expect to hear anything. They go to see. When they would come to a word church, they don't expect to see anything. They go to hear. But when the word and the spirit come together so that we can be ready for what's coming, those who come to see will hear. And those who come to hear will see.